Daniel chapter 7 tonight, and uh, we're going to begin reading, though, in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And you've got that on the front uh, of the piece of paper there before you. We're going to read the first 12 verses of the book of 2 Thessalonians chapter number 2. Let's read those and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you I told you these things? And now ye know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you would bless your word tonight, give clarity to the hearts of your people and to our minds. I pray that you'd lead, guide, and direct everything that is said from the pulpit this evening. Father, that you would be glorified in all that's done. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true, it's accurate, it's infallible. And help us tonight to apply it to our hearts and to take courage in the truth that you have it all under control. Father, we love you. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you read through the Word of God, you'll find that Bible prophecy is unique in this quality. That though you may find large portions of it contained in certain places in the Word of God, the Word of God in its entirety is a book of prophecy. You'll find prophecy in the book of Genesis. You'll find prophecy in every book of the Word of God. It may be explicitly prophecy. It may be prophecy by way of type. But all through the Word of God, you'll find prophecy saturating the truth of God's revealed Word. Now, as we study the Word of God and we study end-time things, we find that the Word of God leads us to a belief in what theologians have termed premillennialism. Now you say, what is premillennialism, preacher? Well, premillennialism is the belief that Christ is going to return physically, visibly to this earth, is going to set up an earthly kingdom, as the Word of God says He will, seated upon the throne of His father David in Jerusalem, that this kingdom will last a thousand years or a millennium. We interpret the Word of God literally unless it gives us a reason to interpret otherwise. Now, as we uh, work with the framework of premillennialism, we find that the end of time centers around a particular figure that the Word of God gives us many names for, one of which is the name we're all familiar with, the name Antichrist. He's also called the prince that shall come. He's called a vile person. He's called the beast. Uh, he's, of course, called the son of perdition. And many other titles are given to this Antichrist. He is presented to us as a world leader, as a world dictator, as a charismatic figure that is going to take the heartstrings of the entire world, will unite the world in a one-world government, and will then turn his face against God's covenant people, the Jews, and begin to persecute them. But being that the Word of God is a prophetic book from beginning to end, being that the Word of God has prophecy all through it, you'll find that as you study end-time things, 
Oftentimes, you have to get a uh, collaborative view. You have to get a synopsis by going to very many books in the Word of God. That's one of the reasons that the promise is given concerning the book of Revelation, that blessed is he that heareth and understandeth these things. Because you can't just read the book of Revelation on its own and understand everything that's in it. You're going to have to draw from wells that are found all through the Word of God. There are basically about four or five chapters that deal heavily with who we would call the man of sin or the Antichrist. And let me just give them to you very quickly. Some of them you have on the page before you, others you do not. Uh, as we study the Word of God, we find that the chapters in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 11 all deal heavily with the person or persona of the Antichrist. Let me say that the Bible teaches that the Antichrist will be a person. For a lot of years, people believed that the Antichrist was just going to be a political system. And uh, the Antichrist will lead a political system. One uh, preacher put it this way, uh, you can't have a one-world political system without one person running it. So uh, the Antichrist is not just a political system, but he is an actual person. For a lot of years, people believe, especially as uh, computers began to come into the forefront, believed that the Antichrist was merely going to be a computer. And uh, we heard news reports, and I'm sure you remember them, where that there was supposed to be a supercomputer uh, by the name of the Beast, and uh, that was going to be the Antichrist. I hate to break it to you, but probably the computer you got in the telephone in your pocket can do more than that Beast computer could do. And certainly, if you're going to have a computer, it must be designed. Someone must give will. Someone must give a purpose to that. And so even there, we're drawn back to the idea of a person. No, as we read the Word of God, He's the man of sin. He's the prince that shall come. He's the son of perdition. He is always a person in the Word of God. Daniel's chapter 7, 8, 9, and 11 deal heavily with the Antichrist. In the New Testament, we find that the book of 2 Thessalonians, chapter number 2, which we've read, deals heavily with the Antichrist. And then the book of Revelation, chapter 13, deals heavily with the Antichrist. Now, uh, again, you won't find every passage in those chapters. Uh, you won't find that they're all contained in those places. In fact, as I was sitting there and as the songs were being sung and the offering was being taken, I was reminded of Joel chapter number 2. And it may not deal with the Antichrist, but it does deal with the battle of Armageddon and what will take place when the Antichrist is going to be destroyed. And so uh, there will always be portions of Scripture uh, that you'll come across that you'll find that deal with the Antichrist. So we're not going to deal with all of them. Uh, but I do want us to look at the main ones this evening, and I want us to examine them. You've got your Bible open to Daniel chapter number 7. Uh, now let me give you a short synopsis of what these four chapters in the book of Daniel deal with. Daniel chapter 7 deals with the vision given to Daniel about four different beasts. Uh, he's given a vision concerning a, a, a beast that is uh, an e a lion with an eagle's wings. This represents to us the Babylonian Empire. Now, you remember the Babylonian Empire. It had the emperor Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one that threw the uh, four young Hebrew men into the fiery furnace. He was the one uh, who God took his wisdom and his uh, understanding, his intelligence from him, and he uh, grazed in the field like an animal for seven years. And then uh, at the end of it, God raised him up and prophetically the Bible tells us he was given a man's heart. I believe that means he got born again. You don't have to believe that, but that's what I believe. I believe it means that he came to a saving knowledge and understanding and faith in uh, the Judeo-Christian God. The next animal that is presented in this is a bear that the Bible teaches. This bear that is lifted up on one side represents the next world empire. After the Babylonian Empire was the Medo-Persian Empire. If you study history, and this is pro uh, prophesied in the Word of God, uh, on the night that the Medo-Persians conquered the Babylonians, the Babylonians were uh, having a big party and a big feast. It's contained in Daniel chapter number 5. There they were underneath the city in one of their grand ballrooms. Uh, the city of Babylon. Babylon was a magnificent, it was a wonder of uh, the ancient world, and it was uh, uh, something like 15 miles square wide. Now, you stop and think, what does that mean? Well, it takes me 25 minutes to go 15 miles from Corrington down here to Wall Ridge Road, and it was 15 miles square. 
on every single side. It had the uh, Euphrates River running diagonally through it, and it was a sufficient water source. They were entirely self-sufficient. They were siege-proof, as it were. On either side of the Euphrates River, there were great brazen gates and great iron uh, fences on either side to prevent anyone from sneaking in through the city. So do you know what it is that, uh, that the Medo-Persians did? They decided to get in. They'd have to be cunning. So they uh, rerouted the Euphrates River, came underneath the walls on dry riverbed, and uh, those gates, as the Word of God prophesied in the book of Isaiah, were left unlocked on that night. Uh, all the Babylonians were drunk in these ballrooms in the bottom of the cities, and uh, the Medo-Persians came upon them that night and destroyed them. That was the night that the handwriting on the wall took place, where it says, Many, many, Tekelu Farsen, uh, thou art weighed in the balances and found wanting, and thy kingdom is divided and given unto the Medes and to the Persians. So that was God's prophecy being fulfilled that night. So a second uh, empire rises up, the Medo-Persian. Uh, one particular side, the Persian side, was greater than the Median side. And uh, so it's signified by the bear that's raised up on the right side. After this came a leopard with four great wings and with four heads. This was the Grecian empire of Alexander the Great. It's a leopard because it denotes the swiftness with which Alexander the Great conquered. Alexander the Great died when he was 33 years old. He had already conquered pretty much the whole known world. And uh, the four wings denote the four different quarters of his kingdom that were used to conquer. Uh, but the four heads denote the four quarters it was divided into after Alexander the Great died. He left no clear successor, and so his kingdom was divided into four different regions under four different generals. And then there's a fourth beast that's spoken of that is too terrible to describe. This represents to us the Roman Empire. It's got ten horns. We know there were ten emperors, but we also know there were ten divisions to the old Roman Empire. It's pictured for us as uh, the beast in uh, the book of Revelation chapter 17 upon which the great whore is sitting. It's got seven heads. The book uh, or the city of Rome was called uh, the city on seven hills and ten different horns denoting the ten future kingdoms uh, that will be in the new Roman Empire. So uh, within this context, Context, we are presented the Antichrist as the little horn that comes out of the midst of this beast that is known as the Old Roman Empire. Have, are you with me still? Amen. All right. Chapter number 8 presents to us the vision of the ram and the he-goat. The ram presents to us the Medo-Persian Empire. The he-goat represents to us uh, the Grecian Empire under Alexander the Great. The he-goat has two horns coming out of it. And out of these horns comes another little horn. This looks prophetically to a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Syrian general. Syria was one of the kingdoms into which the Grecian Empire was divided into. And uh, he was a Syrian king, a Syrian leader. Under Antiochus Epiphanes, a great persecution took place against the Jewish people. And uh, he went in and defiled the temple. You'll hear the term desolations a lot as connected with the Antichrist. The word desolation essentially means a defilement of the sanctuary. Antiochus Epiphanes, to show his uh, superiority and to so, uh, show his supremacy, walked into the uh, temple that had been rebuilt by those that came back from the Babylonian captivity. He went in, he offered a pig upon the brazen altar. He took the broth and the blood and what was left over and he poured it upon the uh, Old Testament law, the copy of it that was kept in the temple. This is called the abomination of desolations. But something interesting you'll find as you study Old Testament prophets is that oftentimes uh, figures that to us would be historic at that time were prophetic. And the Antichrist begin to blend as the prophet sees them. And so as this prophecy is being given of Antiochus Epiphanes, the Syrian general, we find that it begins to move past him and begins to look to a man that would be a vile person, uh, the Word of God says, and would be raised up and would persecute the Jews. This is none other than the Antichrist. Finally, in chapter number 9, not finally, we're not even close to finally, don't get nervous. Uh, in chapter number 9, we have the vision of the 70 weeks given. We taught on this in Sunday school. Uh, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people, the angel Gabriel told Daniel. The Hebrew word for weeks is the word Sheba. It denotes uh, anything numerically of the number 7. 
And we find as we study history that these weeks denote a period of seven years. So Gabriel is telling Daniel, there are 70 sevens determined upon thy people. 490 years are determined upon thy people until the transgression is ended, until the king sits upon the throne, until everlasting righteousness is brought in. It tells us in chapter number 9 uh, that, uh, that uh, seven and three score and two weeks are determined until the Messiah should come. There was a uh, 49-year period. You know, it says seven years. So that's se- or seven weeks. That's seven times seven. 49 years were determined from that uh, prophecy until the decree was given forth to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And then 60 and two periods of seven years. 434 years were determined after that until the Messiah should come. Do you know, now we've got a great big God and we've got a perfect Bible. Do you know that from the decree that was given forth for the Jews to return unto the land after the Babylonian captivity until the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey that ne'er a man had ever rode upon was exactly 483 years. The 434 year period combined with the 49 year period. To the day. The Bible tells us then that Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And then there's almost like a gap in the prophetic vision. You'll find this often as you study... Boy, we ain't even got into the message. You'll find this often as you study Bible prophecy. Because the Old Testament prophets saw what you would call mountain peaks of prophecy. They would see major events, but in betwixt them there would be valleys of truth that would be lost upon them. And in the very same way, in the book of Daniel, chapter number 9, it goes from the cutting off of the Messiah immediately to the prince that shall come, the Antichrist. You say, what's in between those, preacher? The entire church age is in between those two events. It's as though when they rejected the Messiah, God clicked the stopwatch on His dealings with the Jewish people. Now, God still is uh, protective over His covenant people. God hath not cast off Israel, as Paul said in the book of Romans. But His dealings with them as a nation have ceased as far as uh, they're related to Scripture and in the public eye. There's still one more week that's determined. We can do math, can't we? That's 69 weeks. There's 70 determined. That's 483 years. There's seven years left. That's where we get the great tribulation period. The time of Jacob's trouble. Uh, the time when the Jews will be uh, given a peace promise for seven years, but the Antichrist will break that peace promise in the midst of the seven years after three and a half years. So the book of Daniel chapter 9 deals with this. Let's do one more and then we'll preach. Amen. Daniel chapter number 11 presents to us the Gentile empire history from Darius down to the Antichrist. Uh, The Bible says in Daniel chapter number 11 that from Darius until uh, the end of the Persian Empire would be four more kings. Then that fourth king would stir up the Grecian kingdom against the Medo-Persian Empire. That was Alexander the Great would be stirred up against uh, the Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is again in view. And he is presented in Daniel chapter number 11 as uh, the king from the north against the king from the south. Uh, the Syrian king versus the Egyptian king. And again, prophecy begins to blend into the future and deal with the Antichrist. Now, I say that because if you don't have that knowledge as you read through those four chapters in the book of Daniel, you might miss the pictures of the Antichrist presented to us. Let's get started. I want to note, first off, three qualities about the coming of the Antichrist. What's going to happen when he ascends to popularity and to the public eye? Some folks, and for a lot of years, folks have tried to put a name on the Antichrist. And uh, for a lot of years, they would uh, say that, it, you know, it was uh, Gorbachev or uh, it was Kissinger, whoever it might be. Uh, a lot of folks have said uh, that the Antichrist is alive right now. He very well may be alive right now. We do not know. He has not been revealed as the Antichrist if he is alive. But he very well may be alive right now. We do not know. But what are the things that will surround the coming of the Antichrist? You've got on your paper there before you, Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Look with me at verse number 3. The Bible says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. Look at verse 6. And now ye know what withholdeth, that's an important word, what withholdeth, 
that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only who who now letteth will let, speaking of the Holy Spirit, we'll talk about that in a little bit, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed. Again, that word revealed is significant. Whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. I would say, first off, that the coming of the Antichrist is a mandated event. You say, preacher, what do you mean by that? I mean God has an appointed time for the revelation of the Antichrist. Do you know our God is so sovereign that He's even sovereign over the things that seem as though they're in rebellion against Him? Uh, Notice the words that are used here. Look at verse number 3. It says, that day shall not come except. In other words, God is saying it will not happen until such and such happens, until I allow it to happen. Verse number 6, and now you know what withholdeth. Well, who's withholding it? Who is preventing it? I know sometimes it feels like this world is out of control. But can I just reassure you that even the revelation of the Antichrist is still mandated by the sovereign design and plan of God. It's not out of His control. You're there in Daniel chapter 7 in your Bible. I want you to look with me at verse number 23. The Bible says, Thus He said, The fourth beast shall be the fourth kingdom upon the earth, speaking of the old Roman Empire, which shall be diverse from all kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth and shall tread it down and break it in pieces. And the ten horns out of this kingdom are ten kings that shall arise. Notice this. Now, these ten kings have arisen in a sense. They did exist, and you can go through, and a lot of folks believe that those are the uh, old Roman emperors all the way from, uh, I believe it's Nero to Diocletian. But it goes even further, because look what it says. It says, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be diverse from the first, and he shall subdue three kings. You won't find this in history anywhere. You say, why, preacher? Because it's not history yet, it's prophecy right now. And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand until a time and times and the dividing of time. That denotes for three and a half years. A time, and then times plural, one and two, that's three, and then a dividing of times, that's a half. I would say, first off, that we see, according to this passage, that the coming of the Antichrist, and listen carefully to the word that I choose, will be magnificent. Now, what I mean by magnificent, I do do not mean something that will be good. I do not mean something that is godly or spiritual. But I mean literally, it is going to be a mesmerizing thing to the world population when they see the rapid arise of the Antichrist from total obscurity. We're told that he would be one of these kings, but that he would subdue three kings in the coming to uh, his one world throne. He's going to do great and mighty things, and we'll talk about that just a little bit later on. But I think we have a picture sometimes of the Antichrist, and in our minds we paint him up a lot like we've painted the devil. You know, he's got horns, and he's got hooves, and he's got a a pointy tail, and he's got a pitchfork. Uh, But the Bible teaches us that Satan himself can appear as an angel of light. We sometimes think of the tribulation period as being a time when everything's falling to pieces. No, 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 friend, for the first three and a half years, it's going to be a time when things are functioning better than they seemingly ever have. Prosperity is going to increase. Everything, peace will seem to flood throughout. That's why he's presented in Revelation chapter 6 as being upon a white horse. He's got a bow. He's conquering, but he's also bringing peace in a sense. It's going to be a magnificent rise out of obscurity into the public light. Turn over a page or so to chapter 8. I want to read one verse over here, or a couple verses in chapter number 8. Look at verse number 9 with me. The Bible says, And out of one of them, speaking of one of the horns that's upon the he-goat, out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land, speaking of Jerusalem. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the hosts and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. That denotes the persecution of the Jewish people. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. The Antichrist will enter the world scene like a hurricane. 
When He enters the world scene, there will be none that can resist Him. There will be none that can stand against Him. You say, preacher, what about all the Christians? Well, that's what it means in Second Thessalonians chapter 2 when it says, only He who led it will led until He be taken out of the way. The bride has already been raptured out. Uh, the salt, the preservative that has been keeping back and trying to stem the immoral tide from humanity is removed because the Holy Spirit in the presence of believers and in the church is removed. One of the great misnomers is the idea that the Holy Spirit will not work at all during the tribulation. The Bible never says that. The Holy Spirit will work during the tribulation. In some ways, He'll work more evidently than He is now. But the influence through the indwelling of believers will be removed from the earth. And uh, at that time, the Antichrist is going to ascend into the public eye. It will be a magnificent coming. The entire world will be drawn to Him. Again, this is not a man. Now, He will use force. There's no question. But when He first enters the public scene, He's going to be a Messiah of sorts. And I would say that His coming will be messianic. Look in chapter 11. You've got it right there in front of you. Look at verse number 36 of chapter number 11. The Bible says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that that is determined shall be done. His coming will be messianic. I'm always nervous when a public figure is perceived as messianic. And regardless of where you fall politically, that was one of the things that troubled me with the election of our current president. There was folks that acted like it was the Messiah coming when he was elected. And in a lot of the same way, now don't go out of here and say that I said the president is the Antichrist. I didn't say that. Not that he couldn't be, but I don't believe he is. And uh, don't go out of here and say that tonight. They'll jail me for a lot of reasons, but that would probably show up in the court case. Uh, but understand that when, whenever uh, the Antichrist ascends in, in the world, I, it's going to be very messianic. He's going to see, be seen as the great peace bringer. He's going to bring and broker a false peace in the Middle East. You hear people say all the time, pray for peace in the Middle East. And I understand why they say that. Don't misunderstand me. But there's a difference. The Bible never says we're to pray for peace in the Middle East. The Bible says we're to pray for the peace of Israel. And there's a difference between those two statements. Uh, you say, why, preacher? Because Israel's not going to have a true peace until the Prince of Peace sits upon the throne. It's not going to be a fight over the land that day. The king's going to be on the throne and the boundaries are going to be determined. You say, what are going to be the boundaries? Well, it's going to be the whole globe that's going to belong to him. Amen? So uh, when it talks about praying, it never says pray for peace. In the Mid there is a peace coming to the Middle East and it will be a false peace that will be brokered by the Antichrist. It says in Daniel chapter number 9 that he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. Again, we're talking about those weeks. That's a seven-year period. But in the midst, he'll break the covenant and he'll take away the daily sacrifice and the oblation and the desolation shall flood in. In other words, the temple that must be rebuilt for all of these events to take place, he's going to go in, as the book of Second Thessalonians says, and set himself in the temple of God to be worshipped as God. This is going to be a very messianic uh, approach by the Antichrist. So we've seen some things about the coming of the Antichrist. Can I give you some characteristics of the Antichrist very quickly? We're just going to try to read through these as quick as we can. Look on your paper there at verse number 9 of Second Thessalonians chapter 2. The Bible says, Even him, speaking of the Antichrist, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying Wonders. Look in chapter number 8 of the book of Daniel. Chapter number 8 of the book of Daniel. And I want you to look at verse 24 with me. It says, And his power shall be mighty, speaking of the Antichrist, but not by his own power. Look on your page at uh, the very bottom of the first page. Look at verse number 4 of Revelation chapter 13. The Bible says, And they worship the dragon. We know who the dragon is. That's Satan. And they worship the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. That's the Antichrist. Gave power unto the beast, and they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Let me say first off, the first characteristic, the chief characteristic of the Antichrist is he is to be satanic. In fact, he will be possessed of Satan. 
In that way, Judas very much is a type and a picture of the Antichrist. Judas was indwelt by Satan. That's what the Bible teaches us in the Gospels. When he went out to betray, not his whole life, but when he went out to betray the Son of God, the Bible says Satan entered into Judas. And in the very same way that that son of perdition was indwelt by Satan, the next son of perdition will be indwelt by Satan. He'll gain great, magnificent, satanic powers. We need to understand this because that's part of the reason there is such a uh, desensitizing to satanic matters. It's made light of, it's made fun of in this day that we live in. Things dealing with Satan, things dealing with the occult are seen as just being trivial, just being child's play. There's nothing wrong with it. Part of the reason is because during the tribulation period there'll be great and mighty and wondrous things taking place by the power of Satan and society must become desensitized to it. I'd say first off, he's satanic. Look back in Daniel chapter 8. You're right there. And look at verse number 11. The Bible says, Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. Who's the prince of the host? That's speaking of Christ. He magnified himself to the elevation of Savior, of Creator, of Messiah. And by him, the daily sacrifice was taken away. And the place of his sanctuary, well, whose sanctuary? His sanctuary, speaking of the Son of God. His sanctuary, his place was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression. In other words, when this takes place, there will be a uh, group of Jews that will side with the Antichrist in the dismissing of the daily sacrifice. And it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practiced and prospered. In other words, his one world religion will be a prosperous thing. You know, that's one of the things that troubles me as a Bible believer about, about ecumenicalism in the day that we live in. Now, I'm not trying to say that folks that don't fuss and fight all the time are, are by virtue of their uh, peaceableness with one another are out of the will of God. But there is a notion in this day that we all ought to put aside what we believe, put aside who we believe in, Sit down around the campfire, hold hands, and sing Kumbaya. This is paving the way for the one world religion that will take place during the time of the Antichrist. Look what it says in uh, verse number 13. Then I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. I want you to notice a second passage in chapter number 9. You're very, very close to it. Look at verse 26. And after three score and two weeks, we spoke about that a moment ago, shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with a flood. And under the end of the war, desolations are determined. And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, the peace covenant. And in the midst of the week, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate, even until the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. Now, I've got some other passages. I'm not going to take the time to read them. I do fear we're running out of time. But I want you to look in uh, Revelation chapter 13 on the page there in front of you. And look at verse number 5. The Bible says, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking of the beast, speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. That's three and a half years. I would say not only will he be satanic, but he will be sacrilegious. He will despise and defile everything religious. Now, when is this going to take place? Well, it says in our passage for forty-two months. I'm no mathematician. But I understand that 42 months, uh, that it takes 84 months to make seven years. Am I right? 42 months denotes three and a half years. For the first three years, there'll be a great push towards ecumenicalism. A great push towards everybody getting along. A great push towards let's not talk about what we believe. Let's just get along with one another. And then as soon as that whole group is together, the Antichrist will ascend into the throne room in the temple. He will ascend into the place where, uh, which rightfully belongs to God. And he's going to say, you'll not worship anyone any longer but me. I am God and you will worship me. He'll begin to persecute any religious worship aside from himself. Look back in Daniel chapter number 8 again. I want to give you a third one. And look at verse number 24. 
and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully. He's going to conquer in a military sense and shall prosper. He's going to become very wealthy and practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy, his politics, politically, also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, and he shall magnify himself in his heart, and by peace shall destroy many. By peace shall destroy many. I'd say that he's going to be successful. He's going to be successful. Through the peace he'll broker, he'll rob people of their liberties, and he will lead them to a hatred of all things related to the one true God. But the economy will do well for a time. Now, I understand the Bible speaks of a uh, pale horse and speaks of death and speaks of a black horse and speaks of famine, and that time will come. But for a short while, there's going to be great economic prosperity. He's going to make him and those that are loyal to him very, very wealthy. He's going to be a successful individual. Look with me at Daniel chapter 7 and look at verse number 7. Daniel chapter 7 and verse number 7. The Bible says, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and strong exceedingly. And it had great iron teeth that devoured and break in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it. And it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. Verse number 25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High. Verse number 5, which we've already read in Revelation chapter 13, says there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things. He's going to be silver-tongued. He's going to be a great orator. We need to be careful about the power of words. Words have a great and mighty power. There's been lots of folks elected in this country, not because they're smart, not because they knew what we needed, but because they knew how to talk. And the Antichrist will be a great orator. He'll be the type of person that if time was to tarry afterwards, which it will not, but if time was to tarry, they'd put his speeches in books and they'd study them in the school systems. He will be a great orator. Uh, look with me at chapter number 11. Chapter number 11. Let's read one verse over there. I want us to notice a second thing, a third, fourth. I don't know where we're at at this point. Look at verse number 21. It says, And in his estate shall stand up a vile person, to whom they shall not give the honor of the kingdom, but he shall come in peaceably and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. He's going to be subtle. In other words, he's going to have great wisdom in the way he deals politically with things. It very well might be that this man is applauded and adored, but then overnight he has gained and grappled away from other world leaders the power of life and death. He's going to be a subtle individual. Let me give you one, and I'm just going to throw this out there. Look at verse number 37 of Daniel chapter number 11. Two things to say about this verse. Notice what it says. It says, neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. I would say the Antichrist will be possibly Semitic in his nationality. We do not know that. I don't think anyone could say that definitively. But I think there does stand to be some evidence that the Antichrist may have a Jewish background of some sort. Isn't it interesting that it says the God of his fathers? That's a uniquely Hebrew terminology. You'll find it all through the Scripture as it speaks of uh, the patriarchs. And it'll talk about the God of their fathers, the God of their fathers, the God of their fathers. In giving the blessing to his sons, Jacob made this statement about Dan, that he is like an adder that biteth at the heels of the horse and casteth back the riders. Old, uh, and I think you've got to be careful about, uh, you know, old rabbinical uh, wives' tales, and I think there's a lot of them, but it is an old rabbinical tradition that that denoted the idea that from the tribe of Dan would come the Antichrist. A lot of speculation has been given that only a Jew would be able to uh, gain the loyalty of the Jewish people. So I, I, I denote that as saying that that's possibly so. I think that we may even be able to go far enough to say it's probably so, but I'd be careful in saying that. Let me give you one final quality about him, one final characteristic, and then we'll move on. Look at verse number 37 once again. It says, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women. I believe he's going to be a sodomite. 
Now, not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes the same thing on anything, I don't reckon. And I've seen uh, commentators do everything they can to dance around this passage, try to make it mean something it it uh, doesn't mean. They've tried to say that it means he's not going to uh, worship female deities. Well, that's foolish. If he's not going to regard any God, why would it need to be said that he'll not regard female deities? Some folks have said that he will not care what women want politically. A man like this doesn't care what anyone wants politically. He's going to do his own will, is what the book of Daniel chapter number 8 or 11 says. So what is being said here? I believe, and by the way, we are living in a day where there is a flood of sodomy like there has never been before. I still don't believe that sodomy is as popular of a thing as the sodomites want to make us think it is. But as far as people getting acclimated, we live in a day where churches are electing uh, sodomite pastors, where the Roman Catholic Church uh, in places is electing sodomite priests. We live in a day where it's not uncommon to elect a sodomite politician. Uh, the, the woman in Texas that everybody's talking about has made no secret that she is a lesbian. She is a perverse and perverted and corrupt person of a reprobate mind. That's what the Bible teaches. So in other words, I believe he will be the culmination of all that is immoral, all that is vile, as it says in in Daniel chapter 11. A vile person will stand up in his estate. And I believe he is going to be a sexually perverse, sodomite individual. He will be the poster child for tolerance and acceptance. But haven't we found out this, that the folks that talk the most about tolerance are the least tolerant. He's going to be the least tolerant of any world leader, for he will demand absolute and unwavering loyalty. Let's say a word about the kingdom of the Antichrist. You've done so good, we've not got much more. Look with me at Revelation chapter 13. Again, you have it in front of you. Revelation chapter 13, look at verses 7 and 8. The Bible says, "...and it was given unto him to make war with the saints." and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds and tongues and nations, and all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him. His kingdom will be a universal kingdom. Things have shifted and moved. The chess pieces are on the board in a way that they never have been in the history of humanity. We are linked up, nations are linked up with nations politically, ideologically, economically, in a way that they never have been before. It was said of a president that was elected to our country that he was the first global president that we've ever had. And that may be true, I do not know, but I know this, that the Antichrist will have a global mindset. Gone are the days of states' rights. Gone are the days of even sovereign national rights. Now we must consider what every nation thinks of our political decisions and of our economic ventures. This is setting the stage for a universal, one world, government and religion. It will be entirely global. I want you to notice a second thing. Look at verse 4. We read it earlier, but look at it in Revelation chapter 13. It says, And they worshipped the dragon which gave power unto the beast, And they worship the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? You've got just above that, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. He that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. His kingdom will be a powerful kingdom. You get a vivid picture of it as you read through Daniel chapters number 8 and chapter number 11. And I encourage you to do that in your own time. You see the strength, the irresistible military power of the kingdom of the Antichrist. And should it be any wonder, for it will be a universal kingdom. It is going to be a statist society. And none can stand against him. He will have the adoration, 
but he will have the loyalty and he will have the sword of the entire world. None can stand against him. No one can battle against him. It's described prophetically in Daniel chapter 11 about Egypt trying to come against him, about the Amorites or the Ammonites trying to come against him. The Bible does teach that there will be a 200 million man army that will come through the great river Euphrates that has been dried up, that will be able to try to contend with him. But understand that at this time he will have complete military supremacy. There's only one leader that can unseat him. Only one. Look at verse number 3 of Revelation chapter 13. It says, And I saw one of his heads. Now this is speaking of the heads of uh, the beast that was seen. It's speaking of the Antichrist. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. Look at verse number 11. You'll have to flip your page over. Verse number 11. And I beheld another beast. This isn't the Antichrist. The second beast isn't. This is known as the false prophet. There will be an unholy trinity during the Great Tribulation comprised of the dragon who is presented as the father of the trinity as the beast or the Antichrist will be presented as the Son, the Savior, the Messiah of the Trinity. And then there will be the false prophet who will in a sense do the work of what the Holy Spirit does in the true Trinity within this unholy Trinity. And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb. And he spake as a dragon. And he exerciseth all the power of the first beast before him and causeth the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And he doeth great wonders, so that he maketh fire to come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of all men. And he deceiveth them that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast, which had the wound by a sword and did live. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. It's going to be a supernatural kingdom, a supernatural kingdom. There will be miracles taking place in the kingdom of the Antichrist, but these miracles will be satanic in their power and in their origin. We know of two or three, I would say, in particular. One of them is the resurrection of the beast. You see, Satan's only a counterfeiter. That's all he's ever been. And just as we see the, the, the true white horse rider in Revelation chapter 19, we see in Revelation chapter 6 the false or counterfeit white horse rider. And just as God has a Messiah, Satan has a Messiah that he wants to set forth. And so this Messiah will be resurrected, just as our Messiah was resurrected, only by the power of Satan, not by the power of God. We know that fire will be brought from heaven in this image that will be given life through satanic power. It's going to be a supernatural kingdom. All these things will combine to bring total universal allegiance to the person and kingdom of the Antichrist. Let's notice one more group of things and then we're done. Let's talk about the conquering of the Antichrist. For seven years, three and a half of peace, three and a half of persecution, the Antichrist will rule seemingly unchallenged. But there is one that can challenge him. There is one that can break his scepter and rob him of his crown. What will be the scene of the conquering of the Antichrist? Look on the back of your page. You should already be looking at it. Look at chapter 16, verses 13 through 16. The Bible says, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon, coming from Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. This is located in the northwestern side uh, near the valley of Jezreel of the nation of Israel. And it's known as the Valley of Megiddo. Napoleon once gazed upon the battlefield and was quoted as saying this, it is the earth's greatest natural battlefield. 
On this place that has been prophesied, there will be a battle take place. The Bible says that in this battle, the blood will flow as high as the reins of a horse. This is the great feast that is spoken of in Revelation chapter number 19. All the armies of the world will gather there to destroy God's holy people. But then in the midst, oh, in the midst of this sea and multitude of wickedness and ungodliness, we see a Savior come forth. Look on your page at chapter 19. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He that sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. A usurper has been upon the throne. One that would blaspheme God's holy Son. One that claims to be a king of kings. One that would go as far as to claim to be a God of gods and a Lord of lords. That's all fine of well and well till the real deal shows up. Amen. That's all fine and well till the true white horse rider arrives. And he comes in power and in glory and in majesty from on high with the armies of heaven following him. We see the Savior. Notice thirdly, the sword of his conquering. What does it say in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8? It's on the front of your page there. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of His mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of His coming. We're told in Revelation chapter 19 that there's a two-edged sword proceeding out of His mouth that with it He should smite the nations. There's a lot of folks that believe we're going to be fighting. If you want to believe that, that's fine. If you read in Joel chapter number 2, you'll find if you read carefully that nowhere does it say that we'll do the fighting. We're overrunning, we're climbing, we're going through the streets when this is taking place. But the Bible tells us that He's going to destroy them with the brightness of His coming. Let's read just a quick verse. You don't have to turn there, but can I read it to you in Joel chapter number 2? It says in Joel chapter number 2 concerning this battle, that a a fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. I believe that the power and majesty and judgment and justice of the Word of God will supernaturally consume the armies of the Antichrist. I'll give you one more and I'm done. Look in chapter number 19 on the back of your page. We see the slaying of this man of sin. One verse... Verse 20, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. Just as the coming of the Antichrist will be mandated by God, the conquering of the Antichrist will be mandated by God. It's a scary thought. It's terrifying sometimes to think what awaits this world. But what an encouragement to know that though the heathen may rage in Psalms chapter number 2, the Bible says that my Lord setteth His Holy One upon His hill in Zion. The only thing that's going to get us out of this mess is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I hope it's been a help to you. You know what it ought to do to you? It ought to burden you to want to win your lost loved ones to the Lord. The Bible says we're going to be raptured out. What of those that have heard the gospel and never received it? It says in Second Thessalonians chapter number 2 that God will send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, I believe folks will be saved in the tribulation period. 
but not folks that have heard the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and have spurned it. There's 144,000 that's going to be saved in the tribulation period out of the nation of Israel. But the Bible says that they are young men and virgins. We have every reason to believe that they were not of the age of understanding whenever Christ came back. But now the gospel has been presented to them. But our loved ones that have heard the gospel and spurned the gospel, oh, we need to get them in. Oh, we need to get them in before the Lord returns. We better get them in now while they can be gotten in.